You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the Comics XF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of Ahoy Comics Blacksmith, uh, volume two of which will have just come out in trade by the time you hear this. Eric Palicki. Welcome, Eric. Hey, thanks so much, guys, for having me. It's really good to be here. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me this evening. Our pleasure. So uh, how was your Super Bowl Sunday? Uh, it was it was good. I am a lifelong diehard Detroit Lions fan. Oh. So I was kind of since the Lions beat the Chiefs in week one, I was kind of hoping for a San Francisco victory so that I could say that the Lions are the second best team in the NFL. But what are you going to do? Uh, I'm really, I'm really just happy for, for, for Taylor Swift. That's all I can say. <laughs> Listen, the psyop worked. That's all anybody cares about. Yes. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Uh, so uh, you actually, uh, you had tweeted this weekend that you finally got to see Fast 10. Uh, yes. I'm a recent convert to the family, but uh, I, I, I'm curious what you thought. So there are... I think really when, when you think about it, there's 11 movies, including the Hobbs and Shaw spinoff and your odds are about as good as a star Wars movie of whether it's going to be good or a train wreck. Um, you know, <laughs> so, uh, it was fine. I, I just admire the fact that this movie franchise that starts with a, a pretty like humble beginnings as a, as a movie based on an article about illegal street racing turned into this crazy uh, uh, over the top action franchise that rivals the Marvel movies in terms of, of, of its escalation and its audacity. And I love that. Like there's, it's easier to name actors who aren't in the franchise at this point. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely nice to just turn your brain off for a couple hours and watch cars defy gravity and things go boom illegal street racing where they're stealing tv vcr combos (laughs) yes that is the ultimate (laughs) metric of how far this franchise has come and they're stealing like 2001's hottest technology and then like i don't know eight nine movies later they're just hacking submarines (laughs) right right they have technology that can find anyone anywhere in the world uh they take a like a with a, a rocket propelled Fiero into space in the last one. So I don't know what to expect. Uh, I know that there was talk, you know, Vin Diesel said in an interview, he'd love to do a Jurassic world crossover. So the sky's the limit with that franchise. I do want to say though, that uh, Jason Momoa in this latest installment is having the time of his life. Uh, he is just hamming it up and chewing scenery and, Whatever you think about the plot holes, which you could drive Dom's car through, it's it's worth watching just to see Jason Momoa play an over-the-top andron- andronymous, androgynous supervillain. Uh, absolutely. I, I think he might be the, the, the strongest villain uh, of the franchise. And, and just, you know, I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, but the return of the character at the end of the movie just, you know, uh, set my heart at Twitter. I was very glad to see that that particular person. Yes, I agree. I agree. It also rivals comic books in its ability for no one to ever stay dead. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It is more like a comic book than most of the comic book movies out there, right? Like we know that Robert Downey Jr. is not coming back as Iron Man, but fill in the blank character who dies in the Fast franchise, there's a chance that you're going to see them again. Yeah. Mr. Nobody's going to be back. We all know yes. it. At, at the right moment, there he is. Yeah. I, I mean, given the, the gymnastics, the, the logistical gymnastics they went through to bring back Han, anything is possible. Oh, man. But uh, for, for the real icebreaker, uh, as we get sure. started here, uh, Eric, what are some of the first comics you remember reading? Oh, yeah. So when I was in fifth or sixth grade, uh, one of my closest friends at the time, he inherited uh 
his uncle's comic book collection. And uh, his uncle wasn't all that much older than we were, you know, probably 10 years or so. So these were relatively recent comics, but there were box loads of these books that were uh, the Frank Miller, Wolver Frank Miller, Chris Claremont Wolverine miniseries, uh, uh, X-Men from around that same era, that early eighties er era. And we would just sit in his bedroom and, go through this box and read new things. And the things that really stuck with me are all of the X books. I am still a lover of the, the X-Men franchise to this day. And the other big one was the Armor Wars saga from Iron Man. Mm. Uh, like that, I think, was the one that really, like Iron Man was my first favorite character and uh, just really enjoyed that. And then, you know, that propelled me to start buying issues, uh, comics. At that time, I could still buy them at 7-Eleven. So I think the first book that I ever bought with my own money off the shelf was X-Men 275, which has this glorious Jim Lee gatefold cover. Mm -hmm. uh, they go into space and, and, and fight the Shi'ar Royal Guard. It, it ends up like that, that particular storyline leaves plot threads that Bendis picks up 25 years later when he does the super scrolls for uh, secret invasion. So it's, it's, just just blew my mind at that point in time so that's really i think the first modern comics that i remember reading aside from uh like the carl barks reprints that i would find at restaurants uh there was a restaurant that we would go to when i was a very very young child that would put the the day's newspapers in the waiting room and then they also left comic books out for the kids and so i remember reading like disney books before that but but really the first superhero books the first popular comics i remember reading were fifth and sixth grade and that would have been you know late 80s early 90s mm -hmm. no that's great and I, and I tell you what uh whoever was sneaking those carl barks uh disney comics in was was doing a service because uh you know it those things trip balls in the guise of kids comics like nothing else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they're fantastic. It's, it's, it's tough. It's fun to go back and read them with an adult perspective now. And they, they really do hold up and they, they actually work on a very different level when you're an adult than when you're a kid waiting for a table at a restaurant. But, but yeah, so comics have just kind of been there in the background my whole life. Well, uh, you are here to talk about Volume 2 of Blacksmith, your Ahoy Comics werewolf detective series with artist Wendell Cavalcante and literary Rob Steen. Uh, Matt, bark at the moon for us. <laughs> Janie Strummer Mercado, LA's only werewolf private investigator, tries to prevent a young girl from becoming a monster with the aid of her suave gin assistant, Ben Silat. But will Strummer gain an intern instead? And why is an old enemy sending mysterious packages to her house? So the trade comes out on Valentine's Day for the simple fact that Valentine's Day is on a Wednesday this year. But uh, what is your pitch for what makes this supernatural noir detective mystery the perfect Valentine's Day comic? Sure. This is a... Uh, so I, I do want to caveat this by saying this is a book that works on its own, but there is a first volume out there. And mm -hmm. this really does build upon the story that we told in our first volume. And the big driver of uh, Strummer's motivations in this second volume is a burgeoning relationship that she has with a woman that we introduced in the first, in the first volume and the terrible mistakes that she makes and that uh, this woman Carly makes as a result of this early relationship and the supernatural and otherwise roadblocks that we throw in her in her way. So it is it, there is a love story on top of it being a noir detective story. And of course, noir detective stories are not necessarily known for their happy endings. So uh, I will caveat uh, that for the readers. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, if you need an excuse to get away and, and, and sneak away to the comic store instead of going out to dinner, the, the subtitle is The Key to His Heart. So, you know, it's right there in the title. And I would posit that a comic is always better than that little teddy bear you can buy at the uh, drugstore 
holding a tiny mylar balloon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we've got these wonderful Liana Kangas neon infused covers that are very, you know, lots of pinks and purples and, and pastels, perfect for the Valentine's uh, holiday. There you go. So uh, let's let's wind the clock back a little bit here. What is the origin of blacksmith for uh, folks who may not know? How back does how far back does this idea go for you? Uh, so the original series debuted in 2000, uh, sorry, 2021. Uh, and the trade came out actually on February 15th of 2022. So, you know, we've definitely accidentally targeted this, uh, Valentine's day holiday two years in a row. Uh, it is, uh, it's a, it's an idea that I've had percolating for six or seven years. Uh, I always thought conceptually, a private detective is perfect job for a uh, for a werewolf, right? They have certain advantages. They have a keen sense of smell, a keen sense of hearing. It's very easy for them to track and find people. So why wouldn't they use those gifts to become a a detective of some sort, an investigator of some sort? And in this instance, this is a character who really wants to distance herself from her supernatural heritage. So she steps into the mundane world and kind of ignores the secret supernatural underground that's percolating beneath Los Angeles. And what better city is there one for noir detective story and two weird enough to accommodate a super secret natural super, a secret supernatural underbelly. I am having really trouble with words today. Sorry. Oh, I'm right there with you. Um, it's all good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, and, and the other part of this is that I watched the Maltese Falcon and said, hey, this movie is great. I love it so much. I've watched it so many times, but it would be so much better if there were monsters in it. And thus, uh, you know, Blacksmith was born. Was this a, had you pitched Blacksmith to other publishers before it landed at Ahoy? You know, it definitely has a different vibe from some of the other books they put out, which I mean, obviously, that's not to say that it doesn't have humor or doesn't blog or anything like that. But, you know, if it's sitting on a shelf or like on an end cap with like the wrong earth or second coming or billionaire island, you know, there is a little bit of that. One of these things is not like the other vibe. Oh, yeah, I definitely have the dubious distinction of writing the least funny book that Ahoy <laughs> Comics publishes. and. Uh, I do think it has, while it's not a humor book, like some of those books, I do think it has a sense of humor. I do think that, uh, you know, they, we do manage to, to inject this story with a little bit of humor, even though it's not like it, comedy isn't the point. Uh, but, uh, but yes, to answer your question, yes, I did pitch this around, uh, Sarah Litt, who was my editor, uh, at Ahoy, editor at large for the for the whole publisher, uh, approached me uh, to to pitch a few ideas to them when she took over, and I sent her three or four ideas, mostly ideas that were like blacksmith projects that had circulated in the in the the comics sphere and just didn't go anywhere with other publishers, and for whatever reason she this one she really attached herself to and fell in love with and she said you know if you can if you can beef up the jokes a little bit and make it a little funnier that would be great but you know the the senior staff at ahoy is in love with this as is so we'd like to move forward with it and here we are is it is it different promoting the full trade versus the the first issue of the thing you know is there a part of you that's so far removed from the story at this point and focused on the next thing that you're working on that you're like, oh, gosh, what, what happened to this one? Uh, uh, is the one with the werewolf. Yes. I, well, I did have to reread it. Uh, first of all, to answer your question very broadly, it, it is always the case to have to, to promote the full trade because there's so much, especially in a mystery story or a story that has a mystery component to it. I don't want to give away too much because I want the, the reader to enjoy that journey as much as possible. Second of all, this is the second volume of a two volume story. Uh, and I don't want to give away, I want to be able to talk about this one in the context of that first volume while also promoting that first volume 
to people who might not have read either one. Uh, and uh, to your to your point, I wrote the last issue of this. I think I handed it in just over a year ago. So it has been a year since I have you know, engaged with this story as a writer. Now I did go back and when the fifth issue was released and I had all five, I was able to sit down and, and I read it cover to cover. Uh, and it's, it's pretty good. I, uh, that writer's passable. So, but, but yes, it is a little bit of a challenge to talk about stories in that context. Uh, so this is both the most technical and sort of the most obnoxiously general question which i try not to usually do but i'm always very curious when people are writing mysteries and how you handle the mystery of it because mysteries I, i've heard people who write mysteries say what a challenge a mystery is because more than possibly any other genre it has to stand up on a reread because you need to make sure that everything you're setting up at the end is seated properly because otherwise it's a cheat. So do yes. you, how do you work with that? Do you kind of start from the end and work your way back? Do you have the character beats and fit the mystery around the character beats? So a little of column A and a little of column B. I think that my general writing approach whenever I'm doing any story is I need to know how it ends before I can start. Like I, I, I always use the analogy of the roadmap or um, uh, you know, a triptych or something like that where I want to get from point A to point B and I might use ways, I might just kind of read the road map, road signs. I might just kind of wander and meander. Uh, you know, I, I know I have to go to the grocery store and get eggs, but on the way there, I might stop at the comic book store and the coffee shop first. And oh, in addition to eggs, I need to pick up, you know, uh, milk and cookies and bread and everything else. And so even though I know like what the end goal is, I let the story kind of decide how I'm going to get there. And I think that I don't want to toot my own horn too much here, but I think that I do a pretty good job of, of character interactions. I think that's one of my strengths as a writer. So even if you know how a story ends, I do like to think that I write compelling character beats that will stand up on a reread, even if you know how it ends. And while the first volume, I think, operates a, a little bit better as a kind of traditional fair play mystery. Uh, this one kind of, I think, uh, this one might meanders a little bit more. If the first one is the Maltese Falcon, this one is more, not so much Chinatown, but maybe the Big Sleep, right? Another, you know, another West Coast noir mystery. Uh, where it's 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 you know it's it's got it's more about vibes than it is about the the clockwork nature of a mystery story. So when did you know that there you know a second volume was going to be in the cards for you guys? So we had the the first volume was completely in the can and out, and we found out just before Christmas twenty twenty one. Sarah emailed us and said, hey, I hope you have time in your schedule because we want to do another one. So I immediately started writing uh, into 2022. Uh, and then we were able to basically follow an identical schedule, uh, putting it into production towards the end of uh, 2022. And it came out in 2023. And here we are with the trade uh, landing at the uh, in February once again. So it was, it's really nice, uh, to know, to, to know ahead of time. And it's, it's a rarity. I, I have, I have made this joke is that if you've read any of my other work, I tend to write very, uh, open-ended graphic novels. They almost always have a little bit of a cliffhanger or a little bit of a stinger that would really, uh, 
avail themselves to a second volume or, or multiple volumes or more stories in that universe. And so far it had, and up to that point, it had never panned out. So with the first blacksmith volume, I wrote what I thought was a pretty definitive stand on its own story. And lo and behold, that's the one where the publisher greenlit a sequel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, uh, I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be happier with how it turned out with the with the the critical response and the audience response. It's it's hard to launch an indie black and white book in you know a very crowded marketplace where there's a lot of you know a lot of color and brightness. But the people who've read it have really loved it. So I, I'm really proud of the whole team. And you know, Wendell makes me look good. How much? You know, given given that that you know the the sequel was kind of a a, a surprise, a pleasant surprise. You know, how much agonizing was there in the early going of kind of cracking this story of like, okay, well, I need to you know keep these familiar elements, but I also need to make sure that I'm telling you know I'm 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 pushing these characters forward. I'm introducing new ideas, new concepts, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's always a challenge because when you're telling a story, there's always stories are almost always about two things. So I'm, I'm writing a story about a werewolf detective in Los Angeles, but I'm also writing a story about, uh, you know, a theme. And the first volume is very much about an outcast or a, a self-identified outcast finding her people, you know? And, you know, there's a lot of, of punk rock, uh, you know, symbolism in there in terms of, you know, her name's Strummer Mercado uh, in that, like, you know, it's kind of that sort of punk rock ethos of misfits finding each other and, and becoming a, a tribe and becoming, you know, you know, becoming a found family. So when you start a second volume and you've already done that, so then what is like, what follows forward from that? What is the second volume going to be about if I've already settled the theme of in the first volume so it has to be about something different and i guess it's you know so it's i guess and then what is what i had what i had to figure out for volume two so there was a lot of agonizing especially because i left strummer in a very good place uh in the first volume and then in volume two volume two is very much her empire strikes back it definitely does not leave her in the same good happy place that the first volume does so and I hope listeners out there pick up the trade so that we can convince Ahoy to go go forward with a third volume because, oh my gosh, if I have to leave Strummer here for all times, it's going to be a shame. No, I'm going to, Matt, I'm sorry. Before you go into your question, I just, I just want to say, I, I've seen in interviews before you compare uh, Keto, you know, volume two to uh empire and and you know this is this is not me looking for for any sort of story spoilers or anything that just when, when you say something is empire obviously that implies there's a return of the jedi somewhere down the line whether that's real or not and what that means is ewoks <laughs> look you know we've already got metaphorical we've got, ewoks <laughs> we've got uh We've got vampires, we've got werewolves, we've got minotaur, we've got gin, we've got witches, we've got everything else. Why not Ewoks, right? I guess it would be, uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe gnomes or gremlins or something. But leprechauns, I can I can fit that in there for you. <laughs> Wonderful. This sort of plays off what you were just saying with something I was going to ask anyway. It so that first volume is. I'm not quite a two-hander, but Strummer and Ben are very much front and center there. And so here you're adding a third character into the mix. You're adding Claire as an almost third lead. And is it feels like from what you said that that, is, that was a thematic choice, that she's that what's next. Yes, absolutely. Right. She becomes kind of the... She becomes the viewpoint character. She is to to go back to the the fact that I am a, a longtime lover of the X Men. She is kind of that Kitty Pride, right? The 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 character that arrives new to kind of provide a fresh viewpoint into the 
into the status quo that was already established. And, uh, and, and that's, I think if you, if you want to talk about the themes, like what Strummer went through in the first volume became this kind of, you know, she's this outcast who finds her people. And a big part of the second volume is her trying to do that for Claire, this new character that we introduce. And, you know, part of the, part of the consequences of that is that it goes badly. And that is one of the driving, part of the driving force for the, for the story that you're reading. So how did you and Wendell first come to team up? Because you guys go back a ways, you know, well predating Blacksmith, correct? Yes. So when I was first starting out and I decided I wanted to be a comic book writer, uh, I took the advice that I so often hear, even today, I think it's very good advice was I started small. My first comic book script was not, you know, a 12 issue maxi series a la Watchmen where I was going to reinvent the medium and, and introduce adult themes and symbolism into the, into the comics. I started with these these little four page stories. Uh, part of that was because I was just trying to figure out how I would write a script, what it would look like, uh, you know, uh, how does it work? I, I knew that I could afford out of pocket to pay an artist to draw a story for me. So this was 15 years ago now, 20 years ago. Uh, time is a flat circle. So it might've been last week for all I know. Um, and I wrote these these little four page stories about a teenaged uh, hit woman, and I called it the Undertaker's daughter. And Wendell, who was an aspiring artist, uh, he is native to Brazil, was pretty much in the same place in his career, and was able to draw these pages for me. Uh, these little four page stories. I think we ended up doing five of them uh, for. 25 bucks a page, which is a steal, you know, it was able, you know, he was doing it part-time while he was handling other things. Uh, and it was just this, this, you know, it was kismet. The stories turned out great. He was very amenable to, uh, to notes and to conversations so that it was very collaborative. Like, what do you want to draw? He would tell me, uh, you know, he would tell me if something didn't work uh, and, uh, and and so we we did these stories and and they're very bad because it was obviously me just starting out N no uh, so those those probably will never see the light of day but uh, our collaboration has gone on since then pretty much unabated uh, you know he has had a couple of of really great projects he did a book called Black Acre for Image a few years ago. Uh, he's had some some work with uh, like international publishers. He's a big fan of the Phantom, so he's actually gotten to draw some of the uh, internationally published Phantom mm. comics that are out there. Uh, but we always kind of find our way back together and work on pitches. Some of which have gone nowhere. A couple of which have taken off, like like Blacksmith. We actually had drawn. He had actually drawn the entire first issue of Blacksmith before Ahoy said yes to it, which was great because that put us in a really great position to to hit the ground running with them uh previous to the to that though uh our first success together was the scout comic series atlantis wasn't built for tourists uh which is you know hp uh, lovecraft meets uh a fistful of dollars so that's another one that i would recommend people track down but yeah, we've worked together forever and I would love it if we can continue that. You know, I would love to look back on our careers 20 years from now and say that we have, you know, a Brubaker and Phillips type rapport. But, you know, who knows? Who knows where, you know, this fickle, this fickle industry will take us. <laughs> Indeed. Um, how has how has that working relationship with Wendell evolved over the years? It is, he is, uh, I think he has, he has improved. He has forced me to improve. It is always a surprise working with him because I'm not an artist. 
I, I never thought that I could be an artist, which is, you know, I, I think there are a lot of comics writers in the industry who are failed artists or not quite good enough. You know, you can find Grant Morrison drawn comics from their early, the early part of their career. Same with Alan Moore. Uh, you know, Frank Miller obviously draws half of everything he writes historically. Um, and I'm, but I'm just not there. Uh, but with, with Wendell, he always surprises me. And so I'm always trying to up my game to give him more exciting things to draw more. Uh, you know, it, it's, he's, he's great when I have a nine panel grid and it's just talking heads, but I'm also able to throw in some pretty cool action scenes that he uh, is able to put together and, and delivers things that are more clever than what, how I pictured it in my head. And that's always, that's all you can hope for with an artist collaborator is that they're going to take their skills and make my modest wordplay sing on the page. Uh, what is, what is something Wendell did to surprise you this time around? Oh, this time around. Uh, so there is a, we have been doing this, this, uh, this kind of motif with the, with the book where the first splash page of, of, of every book, its first page is always a downward facing angle. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a, a throwback to how uh, Mazzucchelli drew the first page of all of the born again issues where it's, it always starts with, with Matt in, you know, it starts in a, you know, uh, different, uh, you know, his, his location and his position is indicated by whether he's sleeping in a king size bed or a dingy hotel room or in an alleyway. And so we kind of stole that. And uh, I think it's issue four of the new series. Wendell kind of turns that on his head because it starts in a, uh, a police interrogation room. And the way that he uses the angling to make that work and to kind of keep up with that, that theme that we've had ongoing is just, was just incredible. And, you know, it's, it's really hard to make an exciting, a woman sitting alone in a, in a police interrogation room, an exciting splash page, and and he does it. What has been what's been the most challenging thing about telling these stories in black and white? Color is especially when you're telling a mystery. Uh, so so confession, the first volume was written with the assumption that it would be in color. We had originally planned for it to be in color and it was kind of an 11th hour decision on the part of Ahoy to do it in black and white. And if I'm being completely honest, I was initially a little disappointed in that decision, uh, mostly because uh, it was my own insecurity and I thought that they were just uninterested in in promoting the book. So they were just going to you know, pay for the bare minimum and, and release it alongside other things, but it ended up becoming a, a very big success for them. So I can't complain. And someone else also pointed out to me that, you know, if you wanted to point to the most successful uh, independent comic of the last 30 years, it would be a black and white horror comic from an indie publisher without superheroes in it. So uh, I'm in good company. <laughs> um, so, uh, that was that did affect there are a couple of clues that would have I think been clearer to the reader if the book had been in color uh, but it's it's just another tool in your toolbox when you're telling a mystery story especially that uh, you can't you 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 can't uh, you 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 lose a little bit in terms of of mood and and information just another layer of information that you can't give to readers where uh there's a there's a location in the second volume called the speakeasy and i won't go super in depth on it but where does the speakeasy fall on the writer artist relationship spectrum between tell me what you want to draw and sorry buddy but you're going to have to draw a crowd scene the 
the interiors of that were entirely left to Wendell's imagination. I said, I with with apologies, you need to fill this with unique creatures. Go nuts. And I think he does a great job. He actually put from our, our he put Lucas Lewis from our previous collaboration, Atlantis wasn't built for tourists in the background, which is just was just a phenomenal phenomenal little Easter egg uh, for us. Uh, and I think he did a really good job of conveying a room full of myth mythical and mystical beasts. And and it's it's one of my favorite scenes in the book. And it's a, a scene that I have gotten a lot of feedback on. I also really love the preamble to that where they enter the speakeasy for the first time and I'm able to make a very overt uh, women in refrigerators joke. And uh, uh, I even shared that with Gail Simone and, and she got a kick out of it. So I was wondering that. Beat <laughs> <laughs> us to that one. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, of, you know, sort of, comics royalty connections how did you get uh tony isabella to write the intro for this volume what what an amazing uh get for us what what an astounding thing so without prompting without any coaching uh for those of you that follow tony isabella on social media he will occasionally post these these uh these long form posts generally on facebook things that make me happy. And sometimes he'll be talking about a TV show that he's watching or a movie that he saw or something that he picked up at a bookstore or a comic book store. And out of the blue, again, without prompting, he posted that he picked up and enjoyed the first volume of Blacksmith. Again, I have never met the man. We're both Ohioans, but I haven't lived in Ohio in a decade. Uh, and uh, that was very exciting. And so when it came time to put this together, Sarah Litt and the, the brain trust at Ahoy, Stuart Moore and Tom Pyre mentioned and said, hey, what if we got Tony to write the introduction? And through their connections, they were able to, to email him and he, he you know, immediately agreed and, and wrote, what a beautiful introduction that is. And you know, I, I blushed and, and you know, reached out and thanked him for that those kind words. It is, it's really cool to have the two books on the shelf. The first volume has an introduction by John Lehman who set aside his longstanding internet beef with Tom Pyre to write, write the introduction. So uh, we've had just, just an unbelievable talent, uh, you know, take this moment to kind of shout out, you know, another personal hero of mine on the comic scene, especially the indie comics scene, T Tim Seeley provided a variant cover for volume two, uh, the first issue. So that's just an incredible get for us. And then I had Jamal Igle and Steve Pugh doing it, variant covers in the first volume. So I have been incredibly lucky with this book. Bit of an expected uh, well, question, but let's go there anyway. Uh, favorite piece of, of werewolf media? Oh, so part of the reason that this book really appealed to me is that, uh, the uh, there's a lot of werewolf material out there that's not great, um, but I would have to say it's American Werewolf in London uh, is probably the best example of, of werewolf material out there. Uh, I also have a soft spot for Warren Zevon's mm -hmm. Werewolves of London. Uh, in fact, if I can do a third volume, we're going to find a way to get Strummer across the pond just so I can riff on that song. But yeah, on balance, the werewolf material that exists in media is is not is not the best. Matt, you look like oh, you're thinking you know what? I do want to say real real briefly <laughs> that uh, I did love the werewolf by night one shot that Marvel Studios did. Mm, yeah. You know, it is a rare uh like just a just a home run from them uh, in the last couple of years was is one of the best pieces of media that that Marvel Disney has made in the last couple of years. Oh yeah, absolutely. My my favorite bit of Marvel media since Endgame, but I am also a legendary werewolf 
lover who agrees that I, I could use more good werewolf material. So, you know, it, it, it occurs to me, Matt, I don't know if we've ever actually had the favorite werewolves in comics conversation on this show. So, uh, Eric, a little peek behind the curtain. We were going to do a werewolf-centric Halloween special last year, but then at like the last minute, we found out we could get Matt Wagner and Kelly Jones on to talk about their Dracula Kickstarter that they were launching at the time. So I'm like, okay, scrap all that, throw <laughs> that in the trash. We're doing this now. <laughs> And and uh, so, Matt, I'm going to put the question to you now, and, and listeners, apologies if I have asked this before and I just don't remember. We've done almost 300 episodes of this show. Favorite werewolves in comics? You know, I don't think we've had this because I think I had to put this together for that episode. And <laughs> I happen to have that document. Um, <laughs> it's well, still I mean, good for later. <laughs> yeah. um, I do have a soft spot for Jack Russell for the original Werewolf by Night stuff from the 70s. Not quite as good as that Wolfman colon Tomb of Dracula run, but that's a singular vision of two creators over 70 issues. And Werewolf by Night kind of came and went with its creators. If you want my possibly favorite werewolf story in comics, that's probably Mignola, uh, Wolves of St. August his Hellboy versus werewolf story because boy, howdy does he draw those werewolves. And it was a story that was originally published in black and white in dark horse presents and was only colored for the collection. And it looks stunning regardless. Uh, and I also have a soft spot for uh, Art Balthazar and Franco Aureliani's Patrick, the wolf boy which was their first collaboration, like well before Tiny Titans. It was a weird, it was a cute little black and white all ages book about a little kid who turns into a werewolf. And I have a sketch of Patrick the Wolf Boy as Robin in my Batman sketchbook from uh, Balthazar, which is a one of my quirkier pieces in that sketchbook. Nice. So uh, get, getting back to Blacksmith, you know, I feel like, over the past couple of years, comics have been desperate to teach me about all manner of cryptid from actually Ahoy's project cryptid to uh, like Zach Thompson just did a story about the Dugger Von uh, Wooper in uh, Blue Book. Uh, Paul Cornell's got like a, a kind of all ages graphic novel called Who Killed Nessie coming out soon. So here I come, you know, to this book to read about the werewolf detective with the gin sidekick. And I find uh, Mula Sem Cabeza, a, a headless flaming mule from Brazilian folklore. And I, I swear to God, if you asked me about cryptids like two years ago, I probably would have stopped at like Bigfoot Nessie and my homeboy, the Jersey <laughs> Devil. And, and now I feel like there's a whole like real world like Pokedex, <laughs> to <Yeah>. be quite <laughs> honest, out there. So, uh, you know, how, how much research for you, Eric, goes into kind of plucking monsters and myth out of obscurity for this book. So uh going to be a little inside baseball here, but before that, I want to point out that mm -hmm. specifically, um, and you actually pronounced it. So we're just going to go back to that um, because you, you did a better job than I could. This is one of those examples of Wendell surprising me as I asked him, you know, I said, what would you like to draw? And he said, hey, given the nature of this book, I would love to pull some things from Brazilian folk folklore into this book because we're, you know, we're definitely focusing on sort of the Anglophone and Eastern Europe or, or, and European traditions. Can we do something from Brazil? And I said, sure. And so he sent me a list of two or three and uh, the ones that we used just happened to be uh, kind of ideal for for the story I wanted to tell in the place that we leave our antagonist Rainsford Black, uh, it, it, you know, where, where how we find him at the start of the story. It really just worked that I could I could build something off of this. So it was it was fantastic. Um. So so Rainsford is revealed in the first uh, the first volume to be this kind of billionaire playboy old money uh and kind of old-fashioned kind of almost anachronistic big game hunter who specializes in 
mythical creatures and he collects mythical creatures, whether it be by hunting them or by employing them. And uh, so in a very, very, very early version of the story, and keep in mind, the book is called Blacksmith. It's not called Strummer's Smith. It is, you know, he is, he is as central and integral to this story is uh, as, as Strummer and Ben are, which is why I had to bring him back for the, the second volume because I again I stupidly called it Blacksmith um, uh, and uh, so the idea originally was that th the concept that that he kind of is this big game hunter and in so doing he does things like uh, stops apocalypses because he's able to kill the Fenris wolf and you know stop Ragnarok things like that was was kind of where the story was originally going before I realized he was much more interesting as an antagonist than as the focus of the story. So I had done a lot of research about what kind of monsters he would either hunt or recruit and uh, you know how would he fill his trophy room, which you know Wendell does a phenomenal job of showing us in the first volume. Uh, and uh, so, so yeah, I've, I've done a lot of research and come across a lot of crazy stuff and hopefully, you know, I can't, I can't announce anything yet, but hopefully, uh, there will be some more cryptid related material coming from me from Ahoy in the near future. If I may point out you, if you do volume three and he doesn't appear, you can still call it blacksmith and you'd be able to follow in a long tradition of detective fiction, where the title character disappears and sequels continue. How many Thin Man <laughs> movies were they? And the Thin Man is the victim in the first of those movies. Right. There's like five more. It is not Nick Charles, no matter how many people assume that it is. That's a good point. <laughs> I, I mean, and that's kind of one of those, I'm also a big fan of the Thin Man, and that was one of those touchstones of how to how to put a sense of humor into a detective story. Uh, so it was definitely it was definitely one of the things that was front and center on my mind as I was putting these books together. Were Were there any monsters or supernatural entities that you weren't able to cram into this volume that you wanted to? So I would have liked to include. Um, I would have liked to have included. Uh, not exactly, but I did want to kind of. Uh, uh, I wanted to explore Ben and unfortunately Ben's story arc is a little truncated in the second volume. And there was a lot that I had to leave on the cutting room floor. And I kind of wanted to explore uh, his, his parents, his parentage. Mm. Um, and uh, a, a sea lot is a very specific kind of gin or Ifrit in uh, uh, Middle Eastern mythology. Uh, and I wanted to explore his namesake and where that came from and what that means for him and how he kind of defies his parentage and, and who he is. So again, that's hopefully material that I can uh, use for the third volume. So uh, we got kind of a, a, a silly question here, here from uh, our grand Twitter inquisitor, Asimov Fangirl, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it because I, th I think it's a little fun. Uh, if a werewolf bites a regular wolf or other animal, Will it become a werehuman? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, the 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 mythology of werewolves that I use in this story is not the that doesn't use that kind of uh, of transformation. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the in the appropriate story, I would assume so. Uh, I know that werehumans exist in like the world of darkness uh, version of werewolves, so. Or, you know, werewolves that start as wolves that are, are wolves to start with. So. Uh, there is both one of those in the Dresden Files novels. And Peter David wrote an entire comedic horror novel called Howling Mad, which is that is the exact premise. Wolf gets bitten by werewolf. Wolf is taken to the Central Park Zoo Wolf turns into man, man-wolf escapes. Man-wolf falls in love. <laughs> Excellent.
So uh, as we start to cool down here, uh, anything else coming up that you can talk about that you want to get a plug in for? Uh, you, ju you just wrapped a Kickstarter too, right? Yeah, I just wrapped a Kickstarter for, uh, you know, Kickstarter does these make 100 projects every January where it's, mm -hmm. it, it invites creators to do a very small campaign where there are only 100 total rewards offered. And I had a book in project in, in production that I was able to do a black and white edition of called uh, Olive the Last Paladin. Uh, we'll be launching another Kickstarter for a full color version and hopefully additional issues later this year. Uh, so that's coming. And then right now, not something I've written, but something that I edited, uh, my, my good friend uh, Evan Carruthers with Wolven Press is running a Kickstarter for a, uh, a, a deluxe two-part horror story uh, two-part horror book, uh, two short stories, and it's called Mixology Noir. Uh, so I, I provided editing duties for for that. Uh, the first volume came out last year. Uh, all of the stories are inspired in some way by a uh, a cocktail. So the first two were uh, were the Ves Vesper Martini of James Bond fame and the Sazerac drink and then these these two are the paloma and the manhattan and they're really phenomenal horror stories he does a lot he he has an incredible range when it comes to storytelling uh i know he has a relationship with blood moon comics so these will eventually also be available in stores but uh in the meantime i definitely would encourage people to check out evan's kickstarter which is running right now uh how much kickstartering do you tend to do uh, you know, are you one of those sort of ABC always be kickstarting uh, creators or? Oh, good Lord. No. Uh, <laughs> the people who are able to do that, you know, the, the, the Charlie Stickney's and the Pat Shans of the world who are able to just roll one Kickstarter after another. I am, I am impressed by their fortitude. Uh, I just don't have the organizational acumen to be uh doing the fulfillment side of things it just becomes overwhelming to me and when i'm stuffing envelopes all i'd rather be doing is writing or literally anything else but uh you know a hundred a uh, hundred rewards is something that's very manageable for me which is why this make 100 uh project they do every every january is is kind of that sweet spot i can just stuff envelopes while i'm watching whatever on probably the next fast and furious movie on netflix so <laughs> uh we're we're starting to get into uh almost convention season again do you have any upcoming uh signings or appearances uh on your calendar there yeah i will be at emerald city comic-con at the end of february uh, i guess first weekend in march depending on how you it's the 29th through the, the third uh and then i will be at uh, C2E2 at the end of April. And then in, in May, a show I'm really excited about is uh, Comic-Con Revolution in Los Angeles. It's, it's in Ontario, California, which is about 45 minutes to an hour outside of Los Angeles. It's always a great two-day show. Uh, Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti are going to be there along with uh, Adam Kubert, a number of other great uh, creators. And I'm very excited that my sister and I will be at the same show for the first time in about five or six years. Um, for your listeners who don't know, my sister is uh, an actress. She was in John Wick, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Friday Night Lights, and most recently she was Kelly Grayson on The Orville. So she's appearing uh, in her capacity as an actress, but we did a book together several years ago called No Angel uh, through Black Mask Studios. So both of us being at a show together is, is kind of uh, exciting uh, after so long there was a pandemic and other things happened that has have kind of kept us uh off the same convention circuit do you guys ever trade convention stories because you're obviously in like two two separate sections of of whatever show you would be at uh you know whether you're th at the same one or, or or different ones i have to imagine the stories come out you know different based on your your respective experiences yeah i mean she because of you know the kind of of audience that she has her she is much more sheltered when it comes to a convention you know she she goes and she does two hours of signings and then gets to go enjoy the rest of her day where 
Whereas, you know, in the, in the artist alley side, you are stuck there all day behind the table grinding for people's uh, bake sale dollars to, to fund your next book. So, uh, but you know, she gets to, and then she gets to tell me all these very, you know, stories where I have to watch my feet because she's dropping names. So you, you have your own names to drop. They're just, they're just different names. <laughs> they're just different. They're different names. Yeah. I, you know, being on a panel with, with Mark Wade and Jean Ha was a pretty big highlight of the last year. And it's a very different kind of, it's very different kind of experience, but I can't tell, you know, you know, you know, John Q public doesn't necessarily understand how exciting that is for me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, penultimate question. What are you reading right now? Oh, right now I am reading, uh, I am quite enjoying the, uh, the Energon universe books from mm -hmm. Skybound. Uh, I am really enjoying, uh, I think that the DC, the DC heroes, uh, the, the, the latest iteration of, of DC has been really great. Uh, I kind of paused through the Night Terrors arc, but I'm really enjoying Nightwing. Both uh, Philip K. Johnson's and now Jason Aaron's Action Comics has been phenomenal, and I've never really been a Superman guy. Uh, 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 really enjoying whatever Rom V is up to. Rare Flavors has been fantastic. I'm really looking mm -hmm. forward to the final issue of that. Uh, you know, I mostly uh, I I do subscribe to both of the uh, the digital apps for both of the big two. So most of my comics buying is is indie work. Uh, my friends uh, Bob Franz and Kevin Cuff, along with Kelly Williams, uh, just did are doing Skeeters through Mad Cave, which is just a fun monster. You know, it's like watching a, a sci-fi movie in 1996 it's perfect actually just i backed uh kelly's uh dead in the damned uh went the kickstarter last fall and that was that was metal as hell i really liked it yes. so yeah i'm really excited for uh for that book and and kelly and i know they're getting ready to uh, launch issue two soon so of dead in the damned well, uh, Eric, this has been a fantastic hour. Final question, as we release you back into the world, how can people follow you online and keep up with Blacksmith and everything else you got going on? Sure. I am on just about all of the social platforms, Twitter, X, Instagram, Blue Sky, Threads, at Eric Palicki. Um, and I really do. And then I have a website at ericpalicki.com that is poorly maintained. I apologize in advance. Like all um, good creator yeah. websites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it is, uh, I think at this point, websites are, are not a destination that most people go to. It is mostly uh, just about maintaining that URL until, you know, until the, the wheel turns back and we're, you know, doing website blogging again. Mm -hmm. But for now, you know, I am pretty active on the on the social media platforms. Right on. Eric, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, this has been a blast. Thank you so much. And thanks for the great questions. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash comicsxf, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at ComicsXF, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. 
You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A.